You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. A new rig campaign is distributing wasted locker. The U.S. Congress considers two bills informed by the Colonial Pipeline incident, and congressional committees are looking at the company's response to the attack. More ransomware gangs go offline, but Conti is still trying to collect from the Irish government. Double encryption appears to be an emerging trend in ransomware. Ben Yellen looks at insurance companies clamping down on ransomware payments. Our guest is Nick Gregory from Capsulate with thoughts on the Linux security landscape. And there's another problem with Starkerware, third-party risk. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, May 18th, 2021. Security firm Bitdefender this morning issued a report that a new rig exploit kit campaign is distributing what appears to be a new variant of wasted locker ransomware, a strain associated with the Evil Corp gang. The campaign targets unpatched Internet Explorer browsers, and it uses known VBScript vulnerabilities. Victims get the infection by visiting a watering hole— Apparently, no interaction beyond the visit is required to expose vulnerable systems to infection. Patches are available for both vulnerabilities, and Bitdefender advises bringing your systems up to date. Now that operations have returned to normal, the dark side ransomware assault on Colonial Pipeline has moved into its after-action review stage, as legislators grill the company and third parties seek to extract lessons. BankInfo Security says that two bills influenced by the incident, the Pipeline Security Act and the CISA Cyber Exercise Act, are under consideration in the U.S. House of Representatives. The former would sort out responsibility for pipeline security between the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency and the Transportation Security Administration. The latter would require CISA to establish a national program— in which the government and industry could test their infrastructure's resilience against a range of cyber threats. Colonial Pipeline yesterday participated in staff briefings with the U.S. House Committee on Oversight and Reform and Committee on Homeland Security. The committee chairs issued a brief statement communicating their concern and displeasure. Quote, Following today's briefing from Colonial Pipeline, we remain extremely concerned about the rise in ransomware attacks, and the threat to our nation and its critical infrastructure. It is deeply troubling that cyber criminals were able to use a ransomware attack to disrupt gas supply on the East Coast and reportedly extort millions of dollars. We are disappointed that the company refused to share any specific information regarding the reported payment of ransom during today's briefing. 
In order for Congress to legislate effectively on ransomware, we need this information. This attack not only highlights glaring vulnerabilities in our critical infrastructure, it also exposes a marketplace in which it may be easier for a company to pay off a criminal than put resources toward preventing and defending against attacks. We look forward to working with the Biden administration and our colleagues on both sides of the aisle to strengthen our nation's cyber defenses and secure our critical infrastructure. End quote. Politico offers a rundown of post-colonial opinion on where the experts tell them ransomware is likely to strike next. It's the usual suspects, education, health care, and local government, all of whom have recently received more than their fair share of attention from the ransomware gangs. Jalopnik's rather sour take on the incident is the observation that the ransomware didn't actually interfere with pipeline operations, just Colonial's ability to bill customers for deliveries, which is why the company shut its systems down. Of course, you have to be able to bill for your products and services, so inability to track and invoice deliveries isn't a trivial flaw you can just fix when you get around to it. We're not in Hakuna Matata territory here, friend, but the point is worth considering— Note, too, that an attack needn't hit industrial control systems to disrupt operations. An attack on business systems can often do the job, as it apparently did here. The Jalopnik piece also quotes some of the communications from Darkside recounted to Zero Day, like this one, quote, Before an attack, we carefully analyze your accountancy and determine how much you can pay based on your net income. You can ask all your questions in the chat before paying, and our support will answer them, end quote. Jalopnik's comment is apt enough, quote, I can't get over this exchange where the hackers are blasé about the billing breach and refer Colonial to their customer service, as if this were some broadband outage from an ISP, end quote. And tell it, brother. The crooks do act like business reenactors, don't they? That said, Energy Wire Deputy Editor Blake Subcheck tweeted late this morning that Colonial Pipeline notified customers today that it was currently experiencing network issues impacting customers' ability to enter and update nominations. Nominations, in this sense, refers to a shipper's request to move a certain amount of product. It's not known how serious this is, how long it might last, or whether it's related to the dark side attack— but it's another instance of how problems with a business system can affect operations. The dark side gang responsible for the Colonial Pipeline attack went offline late last week, either feeling the heat and deciding to lay low for a while or perhaps simply absconding with their affiliates' funds. Reuters reports that two other ransomware gangs, AKO and Everest, also went dark over the weekend. While underground criminal websites do from time to time suffer from instability, Recorded Future thinks that in this case, the two gangs made a conscious decision to drop offline. Intel 471 has a useful account of where things stood with various gangs as of Friday. A number of groups seem to have skedaddled. Conti is one ransomware gang that's still committing high-profile attacks, demanding the equivalent of $20 million for restoration of healthcare sites in Ireland. Computing reports that Prime Minister Martin says the Irish government has no intention of paying. Wired describes a further evolution in ransomware, double encryption. The gangs began by simply rendering victims' data unavailable, moved on to data theft and doxing, and now have begun encrypting data twice. 
In some cases, they use one strain on part of a victim's information and a second strain on the rest, which means that a decryptor will at best restore a fraction of the data. In others, the criminals use first one strain, then another, on the entire corpus. So a second decryptor is necessary. You pay for one decryptor and then find you're being upsold to two. This doesn't seem a sustainable business model. One of the problems we remember with Colonial Pipeline's payment of ransom is that their reported $5 million didn't get them a particularly useful decryptor. That may just have been a lousy decryptor, and that's been seen before, but the principle is the same. It's bad business for a bad business, and no amount of chipper customer service chat is going to overcome the reluctance people are going to have to paying up. Stalkerware is unsavory and a threat to privacy, but according to ESET, it's also dangerously slovenly, exposing its victims to further third-party risk. Stalkerware is often sold as a safety product, presumably one that enables a protector to look after you as a parent might keep track of a minor child. But ESET notes that this particular fig leaf is a pretty small and translucent one. The security firm writes, for stalkerware vendors to stay under the radar and avoid being flagged as stalkerware, their apps are in many cases promoted as providing protection to children, employees, or women, yet the word spy is used many times on their websites. Searching for these tools online isn't difficult at all. You don't have to browse underground websites. End quote. ESET researchers looked into 86 Android stalkerware apps and found a total of 158 vulnerabilities across 58 of them. Those bugs would enable a third party, neither the stalker nor the subject of the stalking, to extract sensitive personal information from the victim's affected device. And wait, there's more. Some of the apps upload that personal data to their servers. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. 
Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. Despite vulnerabilities on Windows and macOS tending to grab the biggest headlines, attacks on Linux systems continue to grow in scope and prevalence. Nick Gregory is a research scientist at Capsule 8, and his team has been tracking the issue. So for Linux itself being the kernel, I would say it's a relatively good state of affairs, right? It's not like we're finding critical bugs every other week. Um, mm. Do th- Things do pop up every once in a while, but for the most part, the kernel itself is pretty robust at this point, I would say. As for like the rest of the Linux ecosystem, that's where I would say we start to run into more issues. Um, again, not everything is bad, but... Uh, but you're certainly more likely to hear about things impacting large businesses, you know, in those types of things. It feels like almost every week. And what sort of things are, are you all tracking? I mean, how how has the the proliferation of these sorts of malware tools uh, taken place in the past year or so? So we've definitely noticed a lot more just kind of low-hanging fruit attacks. Uh, crypto miners in particular have been basically present wherever we look, which was definitely not the case. It feels, you know, a couple, two, three years ago. Other than that, like, it feels like, it feels like we're just seeing a lot of, again, kind of low hanging fruit, people taking public proof of concepts and just trying to get whatever fast money they can with them. Yeah. You know, and not a whole lot of you know, advanced attacker stuff every day, luckily. I know one thing that you and your team have been tracking is the um, the adoption of the Go programming language when yes. it comes to the the hackers uh, coming after Linux. Can you give us a little bit of the background there? Why why do you suppose we're seeing that? Yeah, so Go in particular has a lot of nice properties for attackers. Um, existing tools to do reverse engineering are just now beginning to actually be able to like properly parse Go programs. Um, before literally, I think two days ago, the most popular, uh, reverse engineering toolkit, Ida basically just didn't support go programs. Like it would load them, but you just didn't get anything useful out of it. Um, so there's that, there's the fact that they're statically compiled. So there's no chance of anything really going wrong. You just drop the binary and run it. There's no dynamic linking or anything. It's just there. And, you know, it's performance enough and you can link in, C library, so you can do anything with it still. So it's got a, a lot of nice features for uh, for attackers. Where do you suppose things are headed when it comes to uh, security on Linux, but then also the bad guys coming after it? What do you think we're in for as you look towards the horizon? 
So I would say opportunistically, um, I'm very excited to see more adoption of Rust and other memory safe languages, um, Go included. You know, it, it does it does have a good use replacing C programs, um, but Rust in particular is getting a lot of uh, traction, and it's you know, even starting to be integrated into the kernel itself. So you know, the more things that we can get in that realm, you know, the better. Just completely eliminate a whole bunch of uh, vulnerability classes. Sounds sounds good to me. That's, I guess, that's kind of the 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 largest thing that I'm seeing in the future. You know, there is going to be the continued push for cloud computing stuff and some of the nice things that come along with that too. Again, security wise, you know, you can very finely tune like IAM, uh, so you do get some nice benefits there if you choose to use them. But yeah, no, I, I would say in general, I, the state of things is generally going in, in the right direction. Uh, eliminating vulnerability classes as we can. That's Nick Gregory from Capsule 8. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security and also my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast. Hello, Ben. Hi, Dave. It's an interesting story from uh, Insurance Journal, and they are covering uh, one of Europe's largest insurers who has decided to stop paying for ransomware crime payments in France. What's going on here, Ben? This is a really fascinating story, which to me, we're going to, I think this is going to become more and more of an issue, and I'm not sure we have a solution to this problem. So this is the insurance company AXA. Uh, I believe that's how it's pronounced and not AXA, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, And they have decided that they are going to stop writing cyber insurance policies in France that reimburse customers for extortion payments made to ransomware criminals. So a couple limiting factors of this case, it does only apply in France. They insure uh, companies in the United States, and this new policy will not uh, apply to those insurance policies. But I think we're reaching a tipping point where policy officials and officials in the insurance sector and uh, in other areas of the private sector are starting to realize that there is this incentive problem. A lot of people are purchasing cyber insurance policies that cover the cost of paying uh, a ransom or paying an extortion fee. And that's made uh, the potential benefits of instigating ransomware attack far greater to cyber criminals um, because there's just more money in the game. Right. You know, if your ransom is covered, it's far more likely that you're going to pay the ransom because it's not coming out of your own pocket, it's covered by mm-hmm. insurance. So that could potentially lead to a resolution like the one here where insurance companies decide to stop paying these extortion payments. Um, But, you know, that's not really a solution to the broader policy problem because then the companies that are the victims of ransomware attack are still going to be on the hook uh, for those payments. Uh, You know, that might give them more of an incentive to, uh, you know, try and recover their own data rather than, uh, paying the ransom, and perhaps you know that's the long-term solution to this problem. Um, but I, I, I think it's uh, something we're going to have to watch out for. We're entering an era where cyber criminals are realizing how profitable it can be to engage in cybercrime, largely because uh, of these insurance policies. Yeah, it's interesting. This article points out that uh, 
They, they um, I believe it was Emsisoft estimated last year that France's overall losses were more than $5.5 billion due to ransomware, and the uh, payments have tripled to an average of more than $300,000. Uh, and the average time to recover is three weeks. Um, I think it's interesting that they're pointing out here that the insurance companies will still cover the costs of recovering from a ransomware attack, but not the actual ransom itself. Yeah, and I think you know they're trying to create an incentive structure where the easiest solution is not to reward the criminals who instigated the ransomware attack in the first place. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's a noble cause and a noble goal. Does it contend with the real world situation where sometimes organizations really just want to pay the ransom and have their uh, you know data decrypted? I'm not sure it, it contends with that real world, and I think that's going to be a problem. I think in an ideal world, yes, you have the insurance uh, cover recovering from the attack and not um, you know engaging in these extortion payments. Uh, yeah, but I, I just don't know or think that that's the world that we live in. Yeah, you know, I, I've wondered about this in some other interviews I've done with some experts on the topic. I wonder if insurance for ransomware is going to go the way of flood insurance, where you have a national program backed by the feds because uh, it's not profitable for any private insurance companies to underwrite something like this. The losses are can be too catastrophic. And so the really the only backstop you can have is at the federal level. There's been some talk of that coming out of the Biden White House. Nothing's settled yet, but it, it it's not something that they've dismissed. Yeah, you'd hate to see that because the National Flood Insurance Program uh, is kind of a mess. <laughs> uh, <laughs> True. <laughs> which is a, a subject for a different show. Right. Um, so you'd like to see this sort of decentralized system where people are purchasing insurance based on risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I think that can be undermined when you have the situation that we're seeing now where cyber criminals realize that there's a lot more, there's a, there's a much greater chance that they're going to be reimbursed for their crimes uh, because so many of these companies have insurance policies that cover extortion payments. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, interesting times for sure. Uh, ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. That's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.